Alistair Bridge, and you're listening to Unlocked World, with me, Alistair Bridge. Now, whilst in previous weeks we've travelled far and wide across the globe, this week we're staying a little closer to home. Indeed, we are not even leaving this sceptred isle. Today's piece provides an account of a trip I took down to Cornwall to visit the restaurant of my good friend and television chef, Martin Palmer. Long ago, after making his name in some of London's top restaurants, including John's Place, Harry Ramsden's and La Restaurant, Martin relocated from his native Surrey to make his home in Boscastle and opened the outrageously successful Palmer's, a restaurant specialising in locally caught seafood. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Martin Palmer, 1958-2018. to This is a complimentary piece of music from Free Sound Effects Library. For the full track, please go to freesoundeffectslibrary.net. In Herman Melville's Moby Dick, 1851, the narrator called Ishmael says, Whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, Whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bringing up the rear of every funeral that I meet, then I account it high time to get to sea as soon as I can. If they but knew it, almost all men in their degree, some time or other, cherish very nearly the same feelings towards the ocean with me. In short, there is something innate within a man that draws him in times of strife to the ocean. That certainly goes for my friend, the renowned chef Martin Palmer, who around 1995 found the bustling restaurants of Soho all a little stifling and resolved to relocate to Boscastle in Cornwall. And so too do I, with deadlines looming on my soon-to-be ex-wife dragging my name through the mud in the Telegraph comments section, feel the irresistible pull of the ocean. My fingers reach for my Rolodex and I locate Martin's number. Charming and accommodating as ever, he simply says, come on down. And I am on my way to Cornwall for a long weekend. Although I will doubtless file copy, it doesn't feel like work. It doesn't feel like a respected travel writer going to visit a world-renowned chef, but rather like two old friends, arranging a catch-up, looking forward to putting the world to rights over a few glasses of good drink, not to mention some Michelin-star-worthy food. Martin's restaurant may be smack-bang in the centre of Boscastle, but his house, a large one, is on the outskirts, built on higher ground to the east. It is this relief that meant that Martin's home escaped the dreadful flooding which overran the village in 2004. His house spared, Martin and his wife at the time, Marie, opened up their house for several days to rescue workers as a base of operations. This was until, of course, a disagreement with one of the workers with a bad attitude led to the irreparable degradation of this working relationship. Martin has not invited me to stay in his home, he says because his new partner Liana is still settling in, but has pointed me towards a guesthouse in town where he says I will be granted favourable rates. Trevathan Guesthouse, as it turns out, adjoins Palmer's restaurant and is as charming a guesthouse as one could hope. 
managed by the sweet Angela and her more brusque husband Petrock. The establishment comprises five bedrooms and a breakfast room, and sits on the end of what would be a traditional terrace, were it not for the improvements made by Martin to the building which now houses Palmer's. The room which the key that I am given opens looks down the main street towards the harbour, and of a morning allows one to hear the incessant conversation of the fishermen as they head to work at five in the morning. Before I am roused from my slumber by the fishermen's morning chatter, my sleep is fitful and uneasy. In my dream, I am dressed in a thick yellow mackintosh, cable-knit jumper beneath and a sou'wester atop my head. I am walking down a jetty on a rainy night and then boarding a small fishing boat. I have only one purpose in mind, to catch one of man's oldest prey, fish. Once I am on board, the boat chugs out of the bay of its own accord and into a wide open sea which is eerily calm. The rain has abated and the night sky is clear, with a large, the large, white moon shining above, accompanied by a retinue of blinking stars, planets and presumably artificial satellites, although whether those are part and parcel of the dreamscape is unclear and perhaps not worth further scrutiny. I make my way into the small control bit where the controls are, but far from the controls of a modern fishing boat, I'm confronted by a great wheel like one would find at the helm of an old Napoleonic naval vessel. Strapped to the wheel, as one would be to a medieval torture apparatus, is a tiny version of me, wearing naught but a grubby loincloth, fixing me with unblinking, baleful eyes. As I approach the wheel, he sighs but says nothing more. I grip the wheel. Although the boat has steered perfectly well under its own stewardship, when I do grasp the wood, the vessel begins to veer wildly. The water is suddenly choppy and in my path, where previously there had been open ocean, there is now a vast iceberg which rises from the ocean like a sheer white cliff. Whilst the ice face stretches straight up into the sky, my dream vision allows me to perceive that at its top is a plateau where the annual spectator garden party is being held. I am filled with a burning anger and embarrassment due to some indiscretion which may have taken place at this event in years past, something which is very much water under the bridge now for all involved, and I really cannot stress enough that we all laugh about it now. I intuit that my homunculus clone lashed to the wheel wishes to indicate something to me, and sure enough his little eyes dart to the side and draw my attention to a switch that I could have sworn was not there moments ago. It is labelled quite simply torpedoes. I instinctively flick the switch and a brief trill of vibrant joy courses through my body as the long and powerful tubes launch into the water and speed towards their target. They hit home, smashing into the vast iceberg which instantly crumbles into a huge quantity of fine white powder, quickly dissolving into the sea. Lives are unquestionably lost. As the remains of the iceberg and the garden party dissipate, my mind turns back to fishing. I look around my little vessel for fishing accoutrements, but find nothing. I have gone to sea with nary a rod, net, bait or tackle. Disappointment grips me, until I realise something hitherto unknown about my anatomy. My right arm is telescopic and has possibly infinite range. I cast my hand and it plops into the water and sinks beneath the surface. 
My arm gently whirs as it extends, and my hand descends, and I am calm. My head clears as I become one with the ocean, my consciousness diluted across miles of open sea. I feel something at the far end of my arm, a bite. It pulls and pulls harder. Suddenly, my boat and I are dragged forwards in the water. I am at the vessel's prow, and the tugging continues so as to drag us beneath the waves. My eyes take some time to acclimatize, but once they have, I sight the beast which is dragging me further and further into the abyss. It appears to be a gigantic whale, its back scarred and crusted with barnacles. It beats its mighty tail and we pick up pace. Soon, I see that we are approaching the ocean floor, and as I take in my surroundings, I notice strange structures, almost like buildings and monuments, made of vast, cracked and broken bones. The whale comes to a stop and turns to me. It has the face of my wife. I am awoken by the fisherman discussing the price of Pollock. Unsettled, I resolve to take a walk around the village to get my bearings after a spot of breakfast. Running into Petrock in the hallway outside my room, I ask him what is available for breakfast and he informs me that it is finished. I am slightly incredulous. It is half six in the morning after all. He merely grunts, yes, and moves on. I conclude that I will have to find something to eat on my walk. As I pass Palmer's, I note that though the village is a small one, it still clearly has an issue with vandalism. As scrawled on the side of the restaurant is a tag belonging to some lout named Free Kernow. A funny name for someone who I'm sure is a deeply unfunny person. After a little walk up the high street, I come to a small shop and enter. Noticing they have some pano chocolat, I ask the shopkeeper for one, and am told that they are all reserved for a gentleman named Marcus. Incredulous, I push him on whether Marcus has reserved all eleven pastries, and am informed that he has. I suggest that I might wait for Marcus and buy one off him, but the shopkeeper says that he comes by at midnight. I sense that I am being played with and prepare to leave the shop, saying that maybe I will see Marcus around town. The shopkeeper says, He can't be seen. Marcus is invisible. And so should you be. His eyes narrowing and his face contorting into a scowl. Finding my reception in town a little disconcerting, I leapt ahead to the waterfront to allow the soft crashing of the waves to wash away my anxieties. Taking the road down to the sea past my hotel, I noticed that Petrock is watching me out of the window. Just past the harbour, on the mouth of the River Valency, stands Warren Point, elevated above the river and looming large and imposing over the meeting of the river and the sea. From here, atop this mossy, rocky outcrop hewn out of slate-like, possibly slate rocks, I can look back at the little town, or out into the boundless sea and the boats bobbing on the horizon. The weather is calm, and I close my eyes to listen to the gentle sound of the waves, and the soothing honk of the birds. Soon sufficiently calmed, I open my eyes once more, and notice a boat a little closer to the shore. One of the fishermen aboard is scrutinising me through binoculars, and appears to be radioing to other boats. I make my way back from Warren Point, and spy the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic, which, I must confess, my rather swift research on Boscastle had not picked up. I decide to take a closer look. Of course, as it is still before 9am, the museum is closed, but I can see through its windows some of the exhibits within. One in particular catches my eye. Set back from the front window, leering out of the gloom, is a figure, 
clad in a dark green robe with the monstrous head of a huge man-sized goat. I admit to being a little startled, and even more so when I realise that its arm is outstretched to its left, with a finger pointing, seemingly directing me to the door of the museum. Feeling compelled by this Capricorn figure, I move towards the door, and find pinned to it a note saying, Mr Bridge, come to the Napoleon Inn. I am now distinctly unsettled, but what better to do when unsettled than have a little relaxer? The Napoleon Inn is utterly charming, and curiously already open at half nine in the morning. All wooden panels and low wood-beamed ceilings, it is exactly the sort of place where I can imagine the fishermen of old sloshing back pints of ale and talking about a shark or what have you. I order a pint of landlord and a vodka chaser to calm the nerves. At around half midday, a group of lads come into the bar, quickly spot me and join my table, providing me with a further pint, my fifth of the day. They ask me how I am finding my stay and ask whether I intend to remain for long. I mention that I plan only to stay for a long weekend, but the consensus amongst the boys appears to be that this will be far too long. The conversation moves, curiously, for lads who appear a little rough and ready, to the subject of regional devolution, with scorn poured onto the level of autonomy allowed to the Welsh Assembly. I sip greedily at my fresh pint, noting that the lads appear to all have the same tattoo, a white cross on a black rectangle. Nearing the end of my latest drink, I notice that my vision is becoming a little fuzzy. I attempt to speak, but the words feel like heavy clay in my mouth. I look to the lads, whose eyes are all fixed on me. I close my eyes and fall asleep. When I awake, it is night time. My body takes a while to catch up with my mind, but as I recover my faculties, I become aware of a number of things. There is a small square of paper on my tongue. We are in a forest with hundreds of people, and that there is very loud music and an extravagant light show in front of me. One of the lads near me is smoking what I determined to be a jazz cigarette. I ask him what is going on, and he points to the light show which I am now able to ascertain is centred around a small stage, on which there are DJ decks, and a man with long hair and a goat mask stands behind them. That's Lizard Calx, my dope-smoking companion informs me. Lizard Calx, I have subsequently discovered, is a popular electronic musician from Boscastle. A little overwhelmed, I beg a puff of his joint, but am rebuffed. The lad says that I have plenty enough in my system as it is, and as he says this, I become conscious that my surroundings are realigning themselves, from the random array of twigs and undergrowth into regimented fractal patterns. The effect at first is beautiful, then humbling, and then deeply frightening, as everything around me coalesces into a vast prism. The goat, Lizard Calx, has left the stage, he is still there playing the music, but he is also walking towards me, growing ever larger as he does, his goat mouth opening wide. I detect a familiar warmth in my trousers, which I deduce to be urine. A second, smaller goat comes out of the goat's mouth, and his eyes glow. Cornwall must be free, it tells me. This sentiment is echoed by another hundred goats, which I now see below me, above me, and all around me. They begin to bleat in time with the music. Their bleating buffets me from all sides, the sound waves forcing my consciousness smaller and smaller. 
I feel like I am shriveling from a grape to a raisin, but also a man at the same time. I pass out. When I awake once more, I am on the side of the A30, and it is daytime. Having had quite enough, I hitchhike back to London. And of course, since that piece was published, Martin Palmer was killed in a firebombing at Palmer's, and his killers are still at large. This is a complimentary piece of music from Free Sound Effects Library. For the full track, please go to... If you have any information relating to the murder of Martin Palmer, please contact the Devon and Cornwall Police Force. piece of music from Free Sound Effects Library. For the full track, please go to freesoundeffectslibrary.net.